is another episode of What Do I Do Now? I am so privileged and so honored to be able to speak with another phenomenal black woman this month. And there's so much I can't wait to ask her. It's I just got to introduce y'all first. Um, this incredible, dynamic woman I actually met back in my undergrad years, another Ball State grad. You know, I'm, I'm very, very impartial to my college and I love, you know, getting to show folks that, you know, there's a lot of great talent that came from Ball State. But I want to make sure that I introduce her correct, because before, last time I saw her, she was still Stephanie Woolley. But she is now a full-fledged married woman, a wonderful wife to Terrence. I would like to introduce you one of my favorite ladies of Alpha, Kappa Alpha, Sorority Incorporated, Stephanie Piggies. How you doing today? I'm good. I hope you didn't make anybody jealous by calling me one of your favorite AKAs. Listen, the, I'm not trying the, to get you in trouble. End of the day, if they want to come see me, they got to come see me. And that's just what it is. Um, I've known you since I want to say I was a first year junior. I took, you know, I felt like that victory lap was just like my actual senior year, but my first year of my junior year is when I first got to really get to know you and things of that nature. So it's just what it's going to be. I'll deal with the repercussions for that statement later, but truly one of my favorites, if not the favorite. So okay. Yeah, how are you doing? I am blessed and highly favored. It is so good to see you, to catch up. You know, since last time we talked, I was, you know, I after I told my husband all about the Loud Pack show and how, you know, being in Muncie, Indiana, where, you know, anything on the radio was country music or, you know, teeny bop pop. Uh, <laughs> it was really, really great and refreshing to have urban, as they called it, uh, music being played on our college radio station, just having a good time and, you know, being in our dorm and turning on our laptops and being able to listen to the radio and having you, you know, bring the ones and twos was a really, really great memory. I miss the simpler days. We had a great time. I definitely want to give a shout out to uh, everyone that worked and listened with the Loud Pack show. Um, so shout out to DJ B-Rad, Hollywood, Finch, uh, Jim Flames, just everyone that was a part of that. DJ Goldie, it was an incredible. And Deuce, don't want to forget Deuce. Um, thank you, everyone that was a part of that moment in that era. We definitely appreciate it. But we're gonna, you know, get right back to you. So let's rewind it all back. How'd you even get to Muncie from Miami? Because there's great institutions in the state of Florida, but you decided, you know what, I'm gonna end up at Ball State. Let me see what's going on in Muncie. Yeah, I decided to take my talents to Indiana as LeBron was taking his talents down to South Beach. So that was probably a miscalculation on my part. But, uh, you know, I don't remember applying to Ball State, to be 1,000% honest with you. I remember getting the acceptance letter and being like, I don't remember applying here. But I applied to so many schools that, you know, it is what it is. And... The great president, Joanne Gora, at the time, gave me yes. a fabulous uh, scholarship package. So I was like, well, these people can't be that bad if they're giving me all this money to go there. Uh, and every other school was not as generous with their scholarships. So I was like, I've never been to Indiana. I've never in my life heard of a Muncie, Indiana. Right. So, you know, let me go check it out. And of course, I went and checked it out in February. Like what 
you know, I am born and bred from Miami and decided to go to middle of nowhere, Indiana in February. It was nothing but ice and snow and you couldn't even see the campus. The snow was piled up so high. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going here. There's no way. There's no absolute way that I'm going to deal with this, you know, three, four, five months out of the year. This is insanity. Um, but the more I went on the tour, the more I kind of learned about the school. I was like, I think this is a place for me. And my mom looked at me at like a crazy person. And she was like, really? Out of all the schools you applied to, the schools in New York City that you got into, like, you're going to go here? And I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. Um, and I remember my family members and teachers actually saying to me before I left that summer, you know, if you come back after one semester, there's no shame in that. Really? They'd already had yeah. the same for you. Yeah. They did not think that I would make it. They were like, you're a city girl. You love shopping. You love adventure. You're going to go to Indiana and, you know, small town Indiana at that, you're never going to make it. So no one thought I would last four years. But uh, lo and behold, I did. Did, did the damn thing. I, I think Joanne got, kept a lot of us there because truth be told, I, I had an escape plan after two years myself. So, you know, I think the community at our PWI that almost had HBC-ish moments was probably a, a great selling point to you. And I mean... It's hard to leave once you're there. I, I I don't know how people like go from college to college, but the experience that I think we both shared is one that um a lot of black alumnus of Ball State would actually vouch for. I know it wasn't perfect, but um I'm glad I had my seasons and chapters written in months. A hundred percent. Yeah, Ball State was very far from perfect, and I never, you know, I tell people all the time, I don't ever want to paint this idyllic picture of what I think any person of color had to go through at a PWI in a state like Indiana, uh, where I were, had classmates who had never been in class or in such close proximity to another Black person, you know, and they were very vocal about that. And they didn't, I don't know if they ever saw anything wrong with that, that they had grown up with all people who looked like them and thought like them and, you know, uh, had the same values and ideals as they did. Uh, but, you know, it was such a growing experience for me that, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't change it for the world. Got you. All right. So now let's talk post-graduation. You know, you got the degree, you know, you got the graduate under the wonderful Dr. Joanne Gora. What was your next move? And actually, what did you major in? So I majored in legal studies with a minor in criminal justice. Um, I knew, you know, even before I got to college that I wanted to go to law school. And so that is part of the reason I chose Ball State, because I know law school is very expensive. And so I did not want undergraduate debt plus law school debt. Like, <laughs> that's insane. So law school was after that. And I think you know, law school, while I don't practice law currently, and I'm not, you know, a lawyer day to day in the courtroom litigating, reading cases, things like that, I do think it was one of the best decisions I made, because it taught me, you know, everything that you go through in life teaches you something, but it taught me how to think differently, how to think more critically, how to read more analytically. Like, you know how people say reading is fundamental? Law yes. school teaches you how fundamental reading really is and reading every word and noticing where the comma is or isn't 
uh, especially when I was getting married, reading those vendor contracts, because they try to slip a couple of things in there that they think you're not going to notice. Mm-mm, honey, I am reading every word and I'm, you know, I'm like Santa. I'm uh, writing the list and checking it twice. Like <laughs> I was reading everything. So uh, yeah, after Ball State, uh, went to law school and now ended up here in Raleigh, North Carolina. All right, so the journey to Raleigh, North Carolina actually had a pit stop in Atlanta. And I definitely want to shout out to um, your pro fight, if I'm not mistaken, Miss um, Kelly Bennett, who um, kind of bridged the gap for you um, going from law school to getting the government. Yeah, yeah. So I essentially finished up my last year of law school at Emory University um, thinking, you know, the 2016 election had happened and that had a profound impact on a lot of us. Just seeing the country experience this racial ideological divide in this rift was really, really impactful for me. Um, A little brief aside about me. I am the daughter of immigrants. Both of my parents immigrated to this country. So I am a first generation American. And to see the rhetoric um, being spewed about the immigrant community and how they were looked at more so as a threat, I think after 2016, more than they ever had been, um, really spurred me to say, you know, as an attorney, you are debating already written law and you're just trying to get people to interpret the law your way. In government, you can have a hand in writing the laws and making sure that laws that prejudice Black people, poor people, people of color, single mothers, so on and so forth, don't ever become law. Um, So I thought, you know, what a better way to use my talent and love for reading and writing than to help with legislation so that we can make sure that what is going out to even be voted on is equitable and fair. And uh, my big sister, the amazing Kelly Bennett out in Atlanta was already doing a lot of that work very much so on the forefront of kind of government work, civil rights type work. And so I just asked her, I was like, can I shadow you for a day? You know, Mm -hmm. just see what you do, because everything sounds great. Like when you see it on TV or when you read about it, you're like, that sounds amazing. I could do that for sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, after shadowing her and getting there, I think at 9 a.m. and not leaving her office till 945 that night, I was like, "Ooh, this is this is not what I read about. This is not how it looks on TV. When you see lobbyists and government people, you think they're going out to fancy dinners and lunches and you're like. No, this is a grind and you really have to love it and really care about people and the people that you're fighting for to do this day in and day out. Like people do not get into government for the salary. I will tell you that for sure. So it really has to be for a love of the people and a love of the job. All right. And also piggybacking off that, I know you just recently said you're a first generation American. And, you know, in a previous conversation we had, you would mention that, you know, your parents both gave you like, the true Americana experience, like there's no place like this story happens outside of America and what the values and principles they tied into that way in America special for you. But um, what does it really mean to you now in 2021? Um, what does that look like? I know you as someone that's had to advocate for, you know, different leaderships and um, actually underserved demographics. What does that feel and look like for you? 
You know, I love a quote by President Obama that says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but in the unlikely story that is America, there has never been anything false about hope. Um, and if you, you know, look at the American story, watch Hamilton, see how America became a, a country, you know, that shouldn't have happened. You know, America has, even though now we're a world superpower in the beginning, we were the underdog and just trying to piece together what democracy really looked like. And I think people oftentimes forget how fragile democracy can be, how one decision here and there can erode everything that, you know, people want to talk about. Our founders would have wanted this. Our founders would have wanted us to move forward. And I think now in 2021, you know, seeing where America is right now, it is heartbreaking for me to be just quite honest, because I know that we're better than this. I know that this country, that a majority of the people in this country want better for us as a nation and want us to continue moving forward towards progress, towards, you know, ideals that suit everyone, not just, you know, the top 10, 20%, not just the educated, not just those of us who have bootstraps, right? Everyone wants to talk about, let's pull, you know, people underserved, people underprivileged, people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Some of them don't have boots. And I don't know when we became a country that became us versus them. Mm. Because I think that this country was founded on a concept of we, that we the people, and now it's, well, us people and you people. And it just mm. breaks my heart that this is where we are. And I think, and I, I do truly believe as time goes on, it is going to get better. You know, I've seen this new generation on the TikTok and the Twitter and the Instagram reading their parents for absolute filth for the homophobic, racist, xenophobic ideals that they espouse. I mean, Kellyanne Conway, which was, you know, the governor's campaign manager, one of the first women campaign managers to ever run a successful campaign, her daughter gets on TikTok and talks about how awful President Trump was and how awful her mother is for supporting her. And I'm, you know, not saying there should be a rift between parents and children, but I do think this next generation is not so heavily influenced by the ideas and thoughts of their parents. I think the one thing that social media, I will give it a credit to, it has made us a more global society. Mm -hmm. And where when we went to college, like I said, there were people who were like, I've never really had an experience with a black person before I came here. Now with social media, you're seeing people that you might never have interacted with on a daily basis. And you feel like, wow, I'm just like them. We have so much in common. We don't live in the same place. We don't look the same. We don't talk the same. But really at the heart of it, we are the same person. And I think that as we go forward as a nation, I truly believe if those in power would get out of their own way, we will um, be able to repair and mend all of this brokenness. Um, I, you know, that's the audacity of hope as the president Obama says it. And I, I still live, maybe I'm, you know, being Pollyanna-ish, but I still believe that we appeal to our better angels and that at the end of the day, democracy and fairness will prevail. Completely agree. Um, I definitely want to revisit um, the 2020 um, midterm election, if you will, and not midterm election, the 2020 general election, 
you know, it had a lot of hiccups. We didn't get the presidency uh, announced for like six days because things were, you know, being held up. So many recounts and things like that. But here in the state of Georgia, we just had to keep voting because we had that runoff um, for the two Senate seats that um, really changed the landscape for the upcoming president for the current United States of America. And we both sent um, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to Washington, D.C. on our behalf after turning the entire state blue uh, for the first time in 30 years. Um, what type of um, reaction did that give you? Because you, of course, you had been here in Atlanta for a little while. Um, you used to work for or used to work with Stacey Abrams um, before she ran for governor. What type of um, feeling and emotion did that give you? I did not sleep probably for the better part of two weeks. I mean, I literally thought I was going to have an ulcer waiting for all of these results to come in. First the presidential and then Georgia. Um, but there's a song by the Black Eyed Peas that they created when President Obama got elected. And it's called It's a New Day. And it's a super upbeat Black Eyed Peas typical song. And all I remember is waking up at like 5.15 a.m. and CNN had finally called the Georgia runoff race. I, I mean, I didn't turn off my TV for three days and CNN was trying to give me a heart attack every time they were like breaking news. <laughs> and it wasn't really breaking news. This is what you all told us 45 minutes ago. Right, right. I was like, stop the lies. But finally, <laughs> there was some real breaking news. And bless my husband's heart, I was screaming, woke the man up out of his sleep, turned on Alexa, and was just dancing around my kitchen, listening to that song, overwhelmed with just like gratitude and emotion that like, we really are turning this corner. We really are. Um, fighting for the best of democracy and shout out to everyone in the great state of Georgia, especially Stacey Abrams and fair fight, you know, registering people to vote, getting people to the polls does not only happen in election years. That is years and years and years of grassroots organizing, knocking on doors, having conversations, appealing, especially to young people. Millennials are the biggest voting demographic there is right now. And really appealing to those 18 to 31, 32, about how we have the power to flip these elections, y'all. Like millennials are really, really powerful. And I just, you know, if we all knew how much power we had to flip city council races, mayoral races, like, get to the polls. And we did. And they did in Georgia. African-American women once again put the state on their back and did it, did the damn thing. And it just gives me so much hope for my home state now of North Carolina, which has a very similar demographic to Georgia. Our African-American population is not as large or as concentrated in places, you know, like Atlanta or Savannah, but um, we definitely have a very similar demographic and it made me really, really happy that maybe North Carolina can be the next Georgia. Maybe we can, you know, flip our Senate seats and get more House seats and uh, just really, really, really uh, try to get this country uh, back to a place of just common decency. Right. Like I'm not expecting perfection, but I think common decency is not too much to ask for. Not at all. So you actually uh, earlier this year um, started a brand new position with the governor's office. You are now the director of public engagement. So 
first tell me what that exactly what that does the responsibilities that entails and tell me like what you're trying to take that because at the end of the day you hopefully it springs boards into something else but i know you are very very committed to the cause within your state and to be a director in the governor's office i mean you up there you you at the table so especially being a black woman what does that mean yeah, I, I was really, really honored to be appointed by Governor Cooper to head his Office of Public Engagement, which not only deals with constituent services, but the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts for all of state government. So it is you know, the biggest honor and a privilege of my entire life. And you talked about being at the table. I think one of the best things about being in North Carolina and at being at the governor's table is when I look to my left and my right, I'm not the only person who looks like me. You know, he has appointed the first black woman chief of staff, the first black woman um, Supreme Court justice, uh, state Supreme Court justice, the chief, actually, she was the first black woman chief. He has appointed uh, more diverse candidates to his cabinet than any governor in the history of North Carolina. And I don't know this for a fact, but I would uh, barter to say in the country. So, you know, it is that moment where they say, if they don't invite you to the table, bring your own folding chair to be invited to the table and not have to bring a folding chair and to get the good seats. Mm. is, you know, an honor and a privilege. And I know I stand on the shoulders of so many women in North Carolina and elsewhere who have had to bring their own folding chair, who have had to knock down doors and beat down, you know, men at every corner just to get heard, let alone be at the table. And so, you know, as much as I love this position in the governor's office, he is a second term governor. So, you know, can't be there forever. So, in 2025, uh, I will be doing something else. But my goal, and no matter where I am or what I'm doing, is to hopefully open the door for somebody else. So that who once, you know, 10, 20 years from now, when someone, when we have an African American woman governor and African American women sitting at all seats around the table, people don't go, oh, wow, look at this. It's just common practice. You know, that is that is my goal and that is what I always want to work towards. I am such a big believer and advocate for women, but not just women, women of color, because oftentimes when we're somewhere, somebody goes, well, how did you get here? Mm. And you go, <laughs> and you, you know, you take a step back and, and I don't think oftentimes people are being rude or, you know, trying to be insensitive, but it's so often that our presence is questioned. They assume that we know somebody or mm -hmm. that we did something or that we're the one diversity hire. You know, I often think that sometimes that is the first thought that people have, but I cannot wait till we get to a place where in government, in corporate America, no matter what, we stop having the first this or the first that. Right, because we are still having the first black CEO of this company or that company. You know, this is still making news. And I just can't wait until we're just like, oh yeah, another black person CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Move on with your day. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, so in being working in the governor's office and 
being one of many people that look like you and you just alluded to in 2025, you'll be looking for you know potential new position and wherever life may take you. I've got to ask, do you have any political ambitions? Because your husband Terrence already you know refers to you as his Michelle Obama. I understand that she doesn't necessarily want the spotlight and this, that, and the other, but the Stephanie I know ain't really too shy. So I have to ask because I think you'd be a great, you know, whether it be from city council president to potential mayor, potential governor of North Carolina, I'll, anything is within your reach. But I have to ask, is there anything in your future that, you know, has some like two zero and some numbers behind it? Oh my God, you are far too kind. And that is so funny. But no, I don't, at this moment right now, I don't have any political aspirations. Um, everyone who does, you know, I support you. Please let me know because people running for office is expensive. So if you know somebody who wants to run for office or is running for office, please donate. I know that times are hard. We're just getting out of COVID, but even $5 helps. So that is my one quick plug. But no, you know, I think that running for office is such a noble undertaking, whether you win or not, the fact that people choose to run is something that deserves the utmost respect and utmost uh, praise. I don't think I will ever run because honestly and truly at the end of the day, the most important job I think for me in the future will always be being a wife and hopefully one day a mother. I, I know that, you know, women, especially now, are so encouraged to get the bag and do rise to the top of their career fields and be the CEO. And that is amazing. And I love that women are doing that and are just breaking down every single glass ceiling. But um, I think for me, the job that I want to focus on in the future the most is, is being a very present wife and a very present mother. And uh, oftentimes the demands of public service, right? Because your job affects people's lives. How well and how committed you are to your job at any level of government from president on down to just, you know, a city council person, your job affects how the quality of life that somebody else has. And that requires 300% every single day. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I would ever go into that lightly. And so for right now, as, as my life stands, I would have to say no. But uh, maybe catch me in like 2065. See, I like that. I'm, I appreciate you giving me a number because I'm holding you to it now. So, that's And I know you one. will. I know you will. <laughs> All right. So you just and I appreciate how you segued into this. You are a wife now. This is a post. It's not even in a really post pandemic because we're still going through it. There's a whole different variant now. but. You got married right before the whole pandemic even started. So yes, your love. first year wasn't necessarily what everyone would hope and this, that, and the other. Like you came off the plane and into a brand new world and a brand new dynamic. How did you and Terrence get through that? Jesus. Uh, no, but very seriously. Uh, we got off the plane, as you said, from our honeymoon. Uh, I was ready to go start working on the governor's, uh, Governor Cooper here in North Carolina. I was his political director for his reelection campaign. So, you know, the primary Super Tuesday was February 28th. No, it was like March 1st because February is a leap year. So it was like March 1st. And the we went into lockdown like March 20th. 
So we were really ready to hit the ground running. And I'm like coming off my honeymoon, like I'm going to be hitting the campaign trail. I'm going to be traveling to all 100 counties, getting the word out to vote for the governor. And they're like, you're going to be going nowhere. And at first they were like, it's only going to be for 30 days. So like, don't go get your stuff from the office, y'all. It's not that deep. Like, we'll be fine. We just need to, you know, let all this die down. So 30 days. And I was like, cool. I mean, I've never lived with a man before, but I think I could be in the same house as a man for 30 days. Yeah, it, 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 it sounded good. That it sounded good. Just 30 it, days. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, I have to unpack all my stuff because, you know, the week before my wedding, I literally just, uh, un- you know, packed up my apartment, drove to Taryn's house, which was like 20 minutes down the street, dropped off all the boxes, got back in the car and drove down to Florida for our wedding. So it's like 30 days. I have all these boxes to unpack. I'll still be working from home. There'll be plenty of work to do. It won't be that bad. And then 30 turned into 60 then to 90. And 15 months later, you know, I'm just now starting to go back into the office a couple days a week. So it was really tough, you know, uh, being a new wife and thinking that you're going to have all these adventures together and you're going to travel here and there, and then you'll go to work and then just see each other at nights and on weekends. And then you're like, wait, I got to be with this person 24 hours, seven days a week. And I joke with people all the time, but I really thought like, I was like, do I have to feed it? Do you have to walk it? Do you leave newspaper out for it? Like, what do you do with this person for 24 hours? Like, I don't know what men do during the day. Y'all just sit and scratch yourselves. I don't know. So I was in the dark about what I was supposed to do with a man in a house for 30 days, just stuck. Couldn't even go to the grocery store. Wow. All right. So you both are re- working remote. This is a inescapable work life situation that at least right now you, you're you going to have two days to like, all right, bye. I'll see you when I get home. How did you maneuver through that? Because there has to be a work balance between, all right, I got to handle working for the governor's office, but then I got to still be your wife. I got to make sure you're tended to and that my needs are met from you. And how are you juggling that? Because that couldn't be easy. You know, I'm also an only child. So once I moved out of my parents' house when I was 18, like the only person I've ever had to worry about was me, myself, and I. I had also been living by myself for six or seven years. So when I wanted to eat, I ate. When I wanted to do the dishes, I did them. If there were three dishes in the sink and I didn't feel like washing them, who who gonna check me, boo? You know, like that, that was my life for so long. And now you have someone who's like leaving the the cabinet doors open and not telling me that we need more toilet paper. And I'm like, I I can't live under these conditions. Really, I can't. And then, you know, I'm working and work for both of us was really stressful at the time. My husband worked or works for WebEx. So you can imagine during a pandemic when everybody was now trying to transition to all these online platforms, his job, you know, responsibilities grew tenfold. So we both really had to manage work-life balance because at the end of the day, 
I'm no good if I have spent everything I have at work and then just giving my husband the scraps at the end of my day. You know, we really had to be prayerful and intentional about carving out time for each other. And now, even though things are kind of open and we can go on date nights and things like that, we have to be intentional that we don't just Netflix and chill every day. Like, oh, you want to have date night? Let's turn on reruns of the West Wing. Like, that is not date night. We have to really sit down and talk with one another about what we expected and what we needed. And we got a therapist. We love Jesus, but we love our therapist too. And there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with praying about what has been difficult because marriage is hard. Life is hard. Marriage is hard. And the devil is busy. And I think that As people, we need all the tools in our arsenal to be able to fight against the issues that come up in everyday life and that come up in marriage. So, you know, we definitely did a lot of praying, a lot of reading the Bible, a lot of, you know, reading books too. There are a lot of great books about marriage that talk about, you know, how we communicate with one another to talk, that talk about how to fight fair, right? Because... (laughs) I can be petty. We can all be petty. Everybody has a petty bone. Some of us a little more than, you know, some people are a little pettier than others. No tea, no shade. But, you know, when you're with someone 24 hours a day and you're on a conference call for work and they're trying to make a smoothie, that petty comes out really quick. (laughs) And so just taking the time to do also some personal development. I I think was was really, really key. And we're still learning. We've only been married a year and a half, which I know most people are like, that's nothing. But with COVID, like we're adjusting for inflation. Like we're ready to have our five-year vow renewal because we've gone through in a year what I think most couples go through in their first five years. Um, But we had to just stand really firm in our faith and really firm in the fact that like, the only way you're leaving me is in a box six feet underground. So we're going to make this work no matter what, because uh, I paid too much for this wedding and did way too much work to ever have to do it again. <laughs> Quiet as it's kept. When you know the worth and your worth and the investment that you put into this equity, which is your marriage, you can't just let something like a small global pandemic break it apart. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So I have a question now because you had alluded to it and, you know, we're, we're in that vein. What is marriage for you? For me, I think marriage, oh, such a deep question. Uh, thinking that now you got my noodle working overtime. I think marriage is honestly two imperfect people choosing to look past those imperfections and work to make each other better. There are, you know, one of the things talking about work-life balance, I didn't have that. I still struggle with that. I told you right before we got on this call, it's 8.59 at night, right before we got on this call, I was on a work call and I will get on one right after this. Uh, So work-life balance has always been a really hard line for me because I do love what I do and I do think that it is important work. So I think it needs to get done, you know, no matter what, I don't do excuses. Uh, So my husband has really pushed me 
to develop that skill, to work very intentionally from nine to five. And then unless there's an emergency, like your day is over and we have to spend time pouring into us. I am a very imperfect person, but he is pushing me to do better and be better and vice versa. And I think oftentimes in marriage, it is very easy to get caught up in the imperfections. You're seeing this person every day and you're seeing other people, you know, live these happy, seemingly perfect lives on social media and you're seeing their highlight reel. And maybe for two, three, four days, you're coming home and there's just issue after issue. And I think it is making a intentional choice daily to love people past that. And I'm not saying in in situations of abuse or anything like that, that is totally different. That is completely unacceptable. But when a person is just being human, I think you have to make the intentional decisions to not let those voices in your head say like, just throw in the towel, just dead the situation. You don't have to deal with this, you know, be petty, give them the cold shoulder and, you know, say, I love this person enough to work with them through this, to know that there is growth here, that there is potential here. And despite popular belief, you can teach an old dog new tricks. So that is marriage. It is work. It is intentionality and it is commitment. And it is more commitment than you've ever had to do for anything else in your life. Oh, wow. Like you just, you know, dropping these heavy, you know, gems for my listeners. And I certainly appreciate it. Um, Before we wrap up for tonight, because I know you have such a busy schedule. And again, I appreciate the time you're carving out for this Um, because it's headline news right now. Um, the voting rights bill, as you know, has been blocked by the right, and we're trying to figure out what's the next step um, to make making sure that one of our most sacred and most important things that we can do as a people, in regards to um, race, creed, uh, religion, sexual orientation, it's not hindered in any type of way. Um, what 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 do you make of it? What what's your perspective, and how can we move forward? I'm trying to make this short because I could be here for another hour talking about voting rights. I know. And that's why I made it the last question, my dear. Yes. Yes. So I am trying to make it short and sweet to the point. Um, You know, we, our people were not ever thought about when the founders were trying to decide who could vote, right? It was white, rich, landowning males. That was who could vote. Not women, not people of color, not even poor white people uh, were included in that. And as time has gone on, those those rights have increased. You know, uh, in 2012, I believe, there was a significant cut to the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court did. And I think that court case was the start of the decline that we're seeing now. Uh, My thoughts are there are a lot of bills also happening at a local level, at a statewide level that are trying to impede on our right to the ballot box, trying to make it more difficult. Because not to get too partisan, but Republicans know when a lot of people vote, they lose. That, that That's just numbers. That's just math. Um, so I think also at a local level, people have to stay engaged. What is, what's going on on CNN and in the Senate and in the House and in D.C. is 
obviously very, very important. But what's going on at your state capitol in your general assembly is even more important to how you vote. Your ability to access vote, uh, absentee voting, your hours of early voting, if your state has early voting, your ability to early vote is all done at the state level. So, you know, p- definitely be tuned in to what's going on at your state capitol. Call your legislators, call your mayor, write letters because they have offices. I work in our, the governor's office of public engagement where people write their constituent concerns. We read every email. We listen to all those voicemails and those things get back to the governor. Like they don't just go into a hole somewhere. And so if your legislator knows that there is a large demographic that is against them voting for this bill, if they want to get reelected, they'll vote against it. So, you know, while it seems so hopeless and so frustrating and that, you know, the senators and legislators in D.C. are working this uphill battle, um, stay involved because when people are involved, that's how things happen. That's how movements happen. You know, we cannot afford to take our foot off the gas just because we have 50 Democratic senators and a African-American and Asian-American female vice president. We do not have the luxury of taking time off and just being okay with how things are. We have to continue to stay engaged. We have to continue to um, engage in the process. It's not enough just to vote every two and four years. Look at what's going on in your city council. Look at what's going on with your mayor. Call, write, have an actual position on the issue and let them know that this is going to affect your community in negative ways, or if it's positive, let them know that this would be great for your community and you think that it should happen because things don't work unless we do. And change doesn't happen unless we get to work. And so to quote my SOAR and a uh, former Supreme Court justice here in the state of North Carolina, Patricia Timmons Goodson, uh, she loves to say, sometimes we got to pray with our feet. And that means, you know, doing work. We can't just tweet about it. We can't just talk about it. We have to be about it. And so voting rights legislation, I think will, it has an uphill battle, but I think on a local level, we have a lot of power to uh, make some really, really great changes. Faith without works is dead. I have an incredible episode with the wonderful Stephanie Piggies. Um, Please let them know how they can follow you, how can they reach out to you, and how they can potentially be where you're at. Uh, Yeah, feel free to follow me on the Insta. My Instagram is uh, Steph Said It. Steph is spelled S-T-E-P-H. So Steph Said It on the gram. Uh, Please feel free to connect. Send me a message. Um, I'm always happy to chat, to talk with anybody who's interested in state government, who's interested in campaigns, because we need good people to continually be involved in state government and campaign work. because it is really, really important work. And if we don't have good people taking up the fight, then, you know, the fight doesn't uh, go any further. So I'm always happy to chat, Sam. It has been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for having me and taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to talk 
to me about what's going on in this great country of ours. I just appreciate you and for all that you continually do to highlight issues across the spectrum, whether it's, you know, pop culture, government, you know, politics, you, you do it all. And I appreciate you. I'm very, very grateful. I'm very, very humbled to have a network of people, especially women, especially my black women that have literally carried me to where I'm at now. And I have to do my due diligence by giving them the platform as well. Stephanie, you, you're wrapping up this month, but I guarantee you there are going to be a lot more black women to come, if not just as dynamic as yourself. Um, give Terrence my best until I meet him in person. And um, this has been another episode of What Do I Do Now? <laughs>